Happy Independence Day 2021. It's really kind of exciting for me and I hope for you and your family to be experiencing a whole new level of freedom. So I'm, I've been just thrilled ruminating on the idea of freedom on this Independence Day. So I just want to say happy Independence Day. And uh, we have a couple of really special recipes uh, for kids, for corn, and for country. So three uh, recipes I'm going to share with you. One of the first recipe I want to share is this corn on the cob, grilled corn on the cob. So today's Saturday as I'm recording this episode. And uh, we will be getting together tomorrow, and I'm hoping that Caleb and Maddie will be here to help me create this amazing-looking, delicious uh, side dish. So the hardest thing is going to be cutting the corn. you got to cut the corn cobs in half. I'm not sure how to do that. I may have to get out my sawzall. So this week, we had the opportunity to experience freedom at a whole new level. As you're seeing on the B-roll there, if you're watching this in YouTube, hope to, hopefully you're getting to see Maddie and Caleb and Connie and Carissa. You don't see much of me because I'm playing with the camera, but we went to McDonald's for an ice cream cone. So this cool camera that I have now, it takes really good pictures of ice cream cone and food pictures really well. So I'll be using that same camera, hopefully on Independence Day, to get some good shots of Caleb and Maddie and me making this corn on the cob along with some smoked barbecue ribs on the smoker. So I'll show you how we do that and hopefully you'll be able to see that episode next week. I hope it comes out. I never know what's going to happen, but that's the plan. We're going to put some barbecued ribs, some pork ribs on the smoker and we're going to also have a side dish this amazing corn. So as you can see again this is uh, the b-roll is the McDonald's. Uh, just wanted to kind of reflect and ruminate on freedom uh, this year because last year you and I, I don't know where you live but I live in Texas, uh, depending on where you live, you had a lot of restrictions. We could not go and sit in a McDonald's a year ago. So thankfully, it's uh, it's changed. Now we can actually sit in the uh, lobby of a McDonald's and enjoy an ice cream cone. So we walked to our local McDonald's, which we do on a pretty regular basis. After swimming in the swimming pool and wearing the kids out, we go to McDonald's, we enjoy this ice cream cone, and then it's bath time. As you can see, Caleb and Maddie are very good at enjoying the ice cream, but they're not so good at keeping it all where it needs to be. So uh, one of the things that uh, some friends of mine asked me this week, I was telling them about this podcast, and they asked me, what is the podcast about? So I just want to kind of remind you, if you're, if you're new to the show, and I'm sending this out as an email to some of my friends who are on my email list, or that I have your email, you're welcome to hit unsubscribe if you got my email, but I just wanted to say that the show, Maddie for President, is really focused on helping to develop capable, confident, courageous citizens, little citizens. Uh, we're focused on helping train and educate and help Caleb and Maddie grow up to just be capable adults. And we're doing that in a culture that's filled with 
fear and anxiety and a whole lot of chicken-hearted people. So today I wanted to share something that I came across this week from the folks at the Daily Wire. I've been a member, a subscriber, and they launched this podcast called America's Forgotten Heroes. So I wanted to, uh, and the first episode was on uh, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. I'm a huge history buff, and the Civil War is something I've been, and World War II as well. Uh, but history in general, I just love history. So Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain was a professor, and since I teach at college, they call me an adjunct professor. I feel like we have that in common. But I, I've always wondered, what would I do? I did not serve. And as we celebrate Independence Day, it's something that I always think about is you know my son served my father served my grandfather served I never served and I feel like I have the utmost respect for those who serve our country and those who are serving our country so if you're one of those men and women I have the deepest uh, gratitude and admiration for you and so this episode though I want to share this I think is this is going to set the table for Lawrence Chamberlain and the horse, the want of a horseshoe nail. I never heard, I had never heard this uh, before, this riddle, this poem, whatever it is. But here it is. I think it's clip number 15. This is Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain and his actions on July 2nd, 1863, form what is perhaps the greatest horseshoe nail story in American history. Now, for those of you who haven't heard it before, here's a little proverb called, for want of a nail. For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the message was lost. For want of a message, the battle was lost. For want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. And all, for the want of a horseshoe nail. Now, you can make the case, and I'll try to do that a little bit later on, that Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain saved the United States as we know it today. Chamberlain was the horseshoe nail that was not wanting. So the great what if goes something like this. Chamberlain is killed in action early in the Civil War. Someone else is leading the 20th Maine Regiment at Gettysburg. That person doesn't have the calm courage to steady his men at Little Round Top. Without that example, when the Confederates attack in force, the 20th Maine breaks and runs. Because the 20th Maine breaks and runs, Confederates take Little Round Top. Because the Confederates take Little Round Top, their artillery defilades, that means plows right down the length of the entire Union line. The Confederate bombardment causes the Union line to scatter. The Union line scattering leads to a Confederate victory at Gettysburg. Confederate victory at Gettysburg means the Confederates march unopposed into Washington. The capture of Washington means a truce, meaning two nations. And now old people can't travel from New York to Miami without a passport. All for the want of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. Now, all of that may sound ridiculous, and maybe it is, but every link in the chain seems to be a near certainty. So the question is, would the want of a Chamberlain have made a difference? So Lawrence Chamberlain is someone that I think we could all look to and say that is an American hero, a forgotten American hero. I hope you'll check out their podcast. It's called America's 
Forgotten Heroes. It's in iTunes. I just left a five-star review, and I would encourage you to go give it a listen and leave a review. Everyone who does podcasts appreciates five-star reviews. And if you leave a review for Maddie for President, you'll get a shout-out. We don't have any new reviews this week. We have some repurposed reviews. Lovey left a nice review. You can check it out. Just go to the show. Um, and you can also go to uh, iTunesVote.com, and you can leave a review anytime. So one of the other things that I kind of discovered this week was an old speech from President Reagan. I used to be a Democrat when I was young and I was I was like very young I became a news junkie. I would watch the news and I would listen and I like to watch meet the press from the time I was a little boy. I think I just like to hear people talk. But anyway, I know I was drawn to the message of the Democrats. I didn't know why and I certainly at that time didn't know that politicians sometimes told lies. But I just liked Democrats. I liked what they said. The Republicans seemed a little mean. But then when I went to college in 1980, I started to have to think for myself. I paid for my own college. I became, my dad had a deal with all of us kids that when we graduated from high school, we moved out of the house. And that was the deal. That was what's, what was expected. And it didn't seem mean at the time. And he meant it. And we all did move out of the house. And I moved out of the house and across the country to go to college at Baptist Bible College in Springfield, Missouri, where I met Connie and one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. But while I was in college, I was able to vote for the first time for a president. And I heard this guy, Reagan, Ronald Reagan, and the things that he said made me think differently. It made me think about who I was and what I really believed and what I really thought about uh, freedom and being an American citizen. And so I just really look back and think about how uh, fortunate I was to be able to vote for someone like Ronald Reagan. Today, it's a little scary to me to see what the options are. But anyway, I wanted to just share a couple of clips from this amazing speech from 1964. It's October of 1964. When I listened to this, I watched it on YouTube, and then I went and grabbed the transcript, and I spent some time this week just digesting what this guy was saying, Ronald Reagan, back in 1964. And so I want you to hear a couple of clips, but I'm going to leave a link in the show notes so that you can go watch the entire video. It's a pretty long speech, like 40 minutes, I guess. But anyway, I've written it out and kind of formatted it, and I've just been reading it and rereading it and being amazed at how relevant the things that Ronald Reagan said back in 1964, how much they apply today. Things about freedom, things about private property. This, I think, is clip number 14. It's about private property rights, the government's planning, their ability or inability, actually, to plan and achieve anything that works. And also he talks about welfare and how uh, what the government has done back in 1964 didn't really work. And so I just think about the amount of money the government's spending today, the people on the left, the folks who are progressives, the people who believe 
a bigger government is the answer to all of our problems. It's amazing how much what Ronald Reagan said back in 1964 as he was kind of promoting uh, Barry Goldwater for president. That speech and the issues and the words that he used were so relevant to today. So take a listen. I think this is, I think this is clip number 14. Private property rights so diluted that public interest is almost anything a few government planners decide it should be. In a program that takes from the needy and gives to the greedy, we see such spectacles as in Cleveland, Ohio, a million and a half dollar building completed only three years ago must be destroyed to make way for what government officials call a more compatible use of the land. The president tells us he's now going to start building public housing units in the thousands where heretofore we've only built them in the hundreds. But FHA and the Veterans Administration tell us they have 120,000 housing units they've taken back through mortgage foreclosure. For three decades, we've sought to solve the problems of unemployment through government planning. And the more the plans fail, the more the planners plan. The latest is the Area Redevelopment Agency. They've just declared Rice County, Kansas, a depressed area. Rice County, Kansas has 200 oil wells and the 14,000 people there have over $30 million on deposit in personal savings in their banks. <laughs> when the government tells you you're depressed, lie down and be depressed. We have so many people who can't see a fat man standing beside a thin one without coming to the conclusion the fat man got that way by taking advantage of the thin one. So they're going to solve all the problems of human misery through government and government planning. Well, now, if government planning and welfare had the answer, and they've had almost 30 years of it, shouldn't we expect government to read the score to us once in a while? Shouldn't they be telling us about the decline each year in the number of people needing help, the reduction in the need for public housing? But the reverse is true. Each year, the need grows greater. The program grows greater. We were told four years ago that 17 million people went to bed hungry each night. Well, that was probably true. They were all on a diet. <laughs> but now we're told that 9.3 million families in this country are poverty-stricken on the basis of earning less than $3,000 a year. Welfare spending 10 times greater than it was in the dark depths of the Depression. We're spending $45 billion on welfare. Now do a little arithmetic and you'll find that if we divided the $45 billion up equally among those 9 million poor families, we'd be able to give each family $4,600 a year. And this added to their present income should eliminate poverty. <laughs> Direct aid to the poor, however, is only running about $600 per family. It would seem that someplace there must be some overhead. Now, so now we declare war on poverty, or you too can be a Bobby Baker. <laughs> now, do they honestly expect us to believe that if we add one billion dollars to the 45 billion we're spending, one more program to the 30-odd we have, and remember this new program doesn't replace any, it just duplicates existing programs, do they believe that poverty is suddenly going to disappear by magic? Well, in all fairness, I should explain there is one part of the new program that isn't duplicated. This is the youth feature. We're now going to solve the dropout problem, juvenile delinquency, by reinstituting something like the old CCC camps. And we're going to put our young people in these camps. 
But again, we do some arithmetic and we find that we're going to spend each year just on room and board for each young person we help, $4,700 a year. We can send them to Harvard for $2,700. <laughs> Of course, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting Harvard is the answer to juvenile delinquency. <laughs> but seriously, what are we doing to those we seek to help? Not too long ago, a judge called me here in Los Angeles. He told me that a young woman who'd come before him for a divorce. She had six children, was pregnant with her seventh. Under his questioning, she revealed her husband was a laborer earning $250 a month. She wanted the divorce to get an $80 raise. She's eligible for $330 a month in the Aid to Dependent Children program. She got the idea from two women in her neighborhood who'd already done that very thing. Yet any time you and I question the schemes of the do-gooders, we're denounced as being against their humanitarian goals. They say we're always against things, we're never for anything. Well, the trouble with our liberal friends is not that they're ignorant, it's just that they know so much that isn't so. So again, I don't know, you know, I don't know if I'm a Democrat or a Republican. I don't think it really matters. I do believe that I'm a conservative more than a progressive. It seems to me that conservatives want to kind of maintain the values that are traditional in our country, in America. Things like the flag and Independence Day and the celebration of our freedom and the admiration for the men and women who gave their life, the men and women, <laughs> the men and women. I, I guess there are more than two uh, types of people now, not just men and women, but that's a whole nother story for a whole nother podcast. But if, if you're like me, if you believe that the family and values related to the family and growing the family, and if those are the things that matter to you, then you're probably a conservative and probably not a progressive. And when you think about freedom, when I think about freedom, and I think about just like this ice cream cone and the enjoyment of going to McDonald's and eating an ice, ice cream cone, one of the things I know I have to wrestle with every day is the freedom that I love. I love freedom. Freedom is what matters most to me. And so freedom is, to me, this this, this uh, rules, boundaries, and limitations, there are none. Like freedom, ultimate freedom is to get to do what you want, when you want, how you want. But think about that for a minute. Real freedom, true freedom is it's something else. It's something very different. Jesus said, if you follow my teachings, you will be my student and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And, and I've been thinking always this is probably the most profound thing that Jesus said in my opinion it's like a promise but it's a promise that has you know you do this and I'll do that and so freedom matters to me it always has it's like this big important thing that's worth whatever it takes and Jesus said if you follow my teachings you'll be my student and you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free and I just wonder, what do you think he means you will be free from? And what I've come to believe is that the truth that sets you free is the truth in contrast to the lies. And there are so many lies in our culture, especially 
in politics, but our culture has been drowned out the values and the things that matter, uh, things that relate to helping kids grow up to be capable, confident, courageous citizens in this culture that's really, it's a culture of consumerism, and that's a whole nother topic. But I just hope you have a chance to sit back and ruminate about freedom and what does freedom mean to you and what did it cost the men and women throughout our history who purchased freedom at a great price and so I want to I want you to take a listen to this I think it's clip number 17 it's uh, it's a, it's about history from below it's a little bit of background uh, that I think is interesting about Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain would there have been a United States without George Washington? Him alone, that specific individual. Would Britain have sued for peace with Adolf Hitler after the catastrophic fall of France if it hadn't been for Winston Churchill? Would America have won the Cold War if Ronald Reagan had lost to Jimmy Carter? Now, this entire idea of the irreplaceable individual is known as the great man theory. And this theory, this idea that the Napoleonic period would have been very different if Napoleon hadn't, you know, been there, seems simple and obvious. And because it's so simple and so obvious, the entire idea has to be destroyed. In this cynical and unheroic age of ours, the competing theory is called history from below. It's very popular with left-wingers in general and Marxists in particular. History from below focuses on the people not mentioned in history, the disenfranchised, the oppressed, the poor, etc. And it argues that this enormous tide of the masses, that's what makes things happen. The outcome is essentially unchangeable. What history from below essentially argues is that if Adolf Hitler had been killed in World War I, then the masses of disaffected Germans would have simply found someone else to lead them inevitably because he didn't have to lead his discipline, his kindness, his keen intelligence, his moral clarity, and his relentless courage turned every one of his men into the Lion of Round Top. After Lee's surrender at Appomattox, the defeated Confederates formed ranks a final time behind General John B. Gordon, who would lead them through their greatest trial of the entire war. His men would bring their battle flags, shot torn pieces of silk embroidered with the names of the great Southern victories that they had won. The souls of all of their friends were in those flags, men they had been willing to die for, but who had ended up dying for them. And now they would have to take those flags and their muskets and run the gauntlet of well-fed, well-equipped Yankees who would be crowing loud. Many of the Confederates were barefoot and all of them were hungry. They were dressed in tattered rags and no one was more keenly aware than they were of just how little they resembled the once glorious Army of Northern Virginia. They staggered along behind Gordon on his horse, a man who'd had half his face hacked away in defense of what he believed to be his country. And the instant that the nose of his horse passed the farthest soldier in the Union line, a bugle blew, and every single Union soldier snapped to attention at once and proceeded to perform the rifle drill known as carry arms. There was no mistaking it. Gordon knew the instant he heard the first click of the heels what was happening. The Union men were offering a salute 
Gordon was so surprised that he accidentally spurred his horse, which reared, allowing Gordon to draw his sword and touch it to the toe of his boot, returning the gesture to the man he would later call one of the knightliest soldiers of the Federal Army. But Chamberlain, of course, who else? The salute was entirely his idea, and he weighed the idea of presenting arms to the rebels, but he thought that might be going too far. Gordon turned in the saddle and barked an order. His filthy, starving, weeping men straightened immediately, and they dipped their beloved battle flags in salute as they passed. Chamberlain would still be amazed by it himself, describing it many years later. On our part, not a sound of trumpet more, nor roll of drum, not a cheer, nor fore, nor whisper of vainglorying, nor motion of a man standing gained at the order, but an odd stillness, rather, and breath-holding, as if it were the passing of the dead. Regiment by regiment, the Confederates stacked their arms and then gently laid down their most priceless possessions, their battle flags. They could barely part with them, and when they finally summoned the strength to do so, they laid them down gently, painfully, reluctantly, with tears streaming down their dirty and weather-worn faces. And in the clean, well-fed, blue ranks, many men were crying too, their lips trembling, wondering if they would have had the courage to do what these men were doing if the situation had been reversed. Lawrence Chamberlain would return to Bowdoin College and resume teaching. He would run as a Republican and become the 32nd governor of the great state of Maine. He stayed active in politics, but especially in the affairs of the men who had served with him, attending many reunions over the years. He would die at age 85 on February 24, 1914, as a result of the terrible wound he had taken outside of Petersburg 50 years before. It had never really healed. He'd spent the last half century of his long life in constant and severe pain, pain that never went away. For five decades, this man of great dignity would wear a primitive version of a colostomy bag under his black professorial robes, and the damage caused by that Confederate bullet would rob both he and his beloved Fanny of a sex life for the remainder of his days. The constant infection caused by the wound finally grew stronger than even he was. He was the last man to be officially recognized as dying from a wound sustained during the Civil War. And many consider him, rightfully in my opinion, to have been the last casualty of that. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And most of all, I hope you and your family have an awesome Independence Day. Thanks for listening. It always means a lot to me to know that you're listening. So the best way for me to know is send me an email, send me a message, or leave a five-star review. You can go to itunesvote.com and leave a review in any platform that uh, podcasts are played. And I appreciate it when you do that, and I'll give you a shout-out. In next episode, I'm hoping to be able to actually show you how we created this recipe the corn recipe, and the smoked rib recipe. And I'm going to try to get Caleb and Maddie to help us. One of the things we've learned as I close today, I just want to mention, one of the things that we're learning, Lovey and I, is that Caleb and Maddie, just like all kids, they love to feel like they're needed. So this week, Connie went to Sam's to get some salt for our swimming pool. 
and uh, usually I do that but I forgot and she did it for me and when she got the salt out to the pool on the deck she got Caleb and Maddie each their own cup so that they could scoop the salt and put it into the swimming pool now obviously normally I just dump it in but they took their time and they believed while they were doing that they knew because Connie let them understand how much they were helping Pops and Lovey by putting the salt in the pool. And now they understand why salt goes into the pool. And they got to participate. So we want to, Lovey and I, want to commit to do everything we can to involve them and give them a sense of purpose. It's one of the most important things we can do for our grandkids and you can do for your kids, for your grandkids, for your little brother, your little sister, your cousin, your niece, your nephew. If you have influence in a little person's life, that's the number one thing you can do is get them involved, get them engaged, let them exercise their purpose muscle. It will give them meaning, it'll give them a sense of purpose, and that's what, that's what we all need. And that to me is the number one gift we can give to our kids. Now it's starting to rain in Houston, Texas, and I'm going to leave until next time. See you later and have a happy Independence Day. Thanks for watching.